It's a marvelous night for a romance. as I found Fantabulous night to make romance. Come on, well, come on. And even I touch you seems to tremble and hush. And her smiles seem to smile. You must. Can I just get one more romance with you, my love? Can I just get some more romance with you, my love? Hey! Getting this to work has been very annoying. I'm trying to get this stream set up. I had to sign on first because I was having issues with the Twitch interface. I'm really not designed for any of this work, I have to say. Why was I still having that on? That's no good. I got this thing on, though, too. That's plugged in. Okay, good. Oh my god, this will not let me update the category. Come on. Hey. I'm sorry, this is taking a minute, but... I was not expecting this to pop up so quickly, so now I'm trying to change it. In the summertime, when the weather is fine, you can stretch around. And touch the sky. Why will it not let me update the category? Ah. Alright, maybe if I cancel it and try again, I can get it to work. There we go. There we go. Okay. That should do it. That should do it. All right, good. Now I just need to put it on Twitter. R.I.P. Colin Powell, by the way. I do not recognize the pronunciation of colon, I don't know how. I feel like that was just a giant punking of the country. Hey, we're going to have this guy's name pronounced like a butthole. Even though that's not how it's spelled and not how anybody else pronounces it, this guy, we're going to pronounce it like a butthole just for fun, just for gigs. Oh, my God. 
What is going on? Technology, what the hell, man? All right, there we go. Finally. So my little act of rebellion, continuing to refer to him by by the name Colin. So yeah, it took a few weeks off. Had some, honestly, had some technical difficulties that were preventing me from streaming last week, but those appear to have been cleaned up. Uh, probably not going to do too much. Just. I'm probably going to try to get back into doing like a book club thing because once again, I was finding myself in that position of just banging my head against the limits of my ability to, to get to a point that seems worth making. And, uh, when that happens, I kind of just have to stop or else I will, uh, drill a hole in my head like the guy in pie. So, so I'm chilling out. Yeah, I'm going to do next month, I think, the next, the second Mormon episode. Hopefully get that one to the present day. Talk about trying to create a theocracy in uh, Utah, which is really interesting. Uh, and then how the Mormons, once the United States sort of reached them, uh, they made a deal to... To instead of trying to create a, a alternative to America, which is what they were doing out there, uh, they're just going to try to perfect the art of being an American. Which I would argue they certainly have come closer to than any other religious or cultural or ethnic subgroup within the United States. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to... I think today is just going to be me saying hi, coming back a little bit, and uh, have it. this one I actually think is going to be a low-key low and relatively boring, honestly, because I'm a little... Uh, I'm, I'm at the bottom end of a cycle, I guess, and I'm uh, trying to... Uh, refocus, I guess. I am uh, gearing up for a new project, a new podcast project with Chris after the President's one is over, which I'm in the early stages of doing research for, so that should be good. Uh, but when, I'll say it here, when we finish Hell of Presidents, when the last episode comes out in, I think, three weeks, we will do, Chris and I will do a joint stream where we take some questions uh, from anybody who listened and has any specific things they'd like to see expanded on or commented upon. So, tune in for that.
Thurlow Weed. An interesting character, for sure. One of the forgotten uh, kingmakers of 19th century politics. Uh, essentially responsible for the creation of, eventually, the Republican Party. Like he, he went from being an anti-Mason to a Whig to a Republican, and you can see in his negotiations and struggle and, and, uh, uh, and deal-making, you can see the creation of this professional political class for the first time, uh, which is what ends up dominating the post-war American political uh, environment is these, is these new professionalized parties. And also, just a wonderful name, Thurlow Weed. Smoking on that Thurlow Weed. I'll see. I'll watch Dune. I'm not going to the theater though. I, I don't know. I feel like I might have been. It's hard to now to care to go to movies anymore. Sad. I used to love it. I really do feel like uh, like we have for me anyway. Like the the creation of this new type of content, the streaming content, has uh, has destroyed the specialness of film. For me, anyway. But, you know, maybe there's something... Maybe there'll still be some good stuff in, the, in that new streaming milieu. We'll see. I will watch it, certainly. We'll see how it is. See if it's any good. Oh, yes. Can't wait for Eternals. Can't wait for the characters you never heard of standing in a field. And I love the fact that it's... it's, uh, it's uh, Chloe Zhao just goes from the Oscar to that. Like, it's perfect. Kingo will be there, though. How are you not going to get hyped for Kingo? Is it Kingo or Kingo? Do they at least solve that? See, maybe that's why everyone's going to go and see it, just to find out if it's Kingo or Kingo, because I'm not sure. 
It's Kingo? Just saying, writing it doesn't help. Because there's you can do King-O or King-Go. Or Kingo, too. Those are all possible pronunciations of that those letters. Oh, God, there's a hype train going. Oh, no, not a hype train. Seems like there's got to be a horror movie in that, right? Like somebody's got to get a hype train to 100 within a minute or their head explodes or something. Why did they take my voice out of Dispo Elysium? That's a good question. I'm assuming it's because we aren't professional voice actors and they got, uh, it was too popular for a bunch of amateur schmucks to be uh, on your video game when that many people are watching it, or playing with it, rather. Playing with it. I'm playing with my video games, Mom. I don't think we're going to get to the hype train, guys. That's all right, though. I don't think my head will explode. I don't, I'm pretty sure that I don't have an explosive chip in my head that will pop my blood vessels if the hype train doesn't get there. Fingers crossed. Okay. Phew. Missed the hype train with no negative side effects. Thank God. I got to say, I have zero interest in any of the congressional stuff at this point. I just cannot, I cannot bring myself to pay attention to the entire, uh, because the entire pageantry, because there's nowhere to effectively put any energy. All you can do is root for what? Who are you even rooting for? I mean, it, it's hard to, I mean, there are provisions in those bills that are good and it would be good for them to be passed. But it's pretty clear at this point that the uh, that the popular uh, input on any of this is non-existent. It really does seem like it exists uh, to give you like a bad guy like Mansion and Cinema for you to then get mad at, like a medieval passion play, like when Herod comes out and everybody throws trash at him, but. If it wasn't them, it'd be somebody else. It's all about who in the uh, who in the caucus is willing to take the hit, basically. And when you got a somebody like Cinema who is playing some very individual long game that is totally inscrutable, uh, and then somebody like Manchin, who's you know a a plutocrat from a bought and paid for state like West Virginia, then uh, what are you going to do? I mean, like, a root for Bernie to what, though? Like, what can Bernie do? He, he he's, sell, he's selling Luke's. He's like going, he goes in front of the camera and says, these guys are doing bad, and then they say, no, we're not. Okay, well, now what? He's trying, I'm sure, but it's at this late stage, I don't really know. 
what the uh, what the levers are at the level of federal legislation. Like, if there's any hope, it's in local politics. It's in labor militancy and and the strike wave that's happening right now. Those are all things where not only are things moving, but you, if you're a person living in the country, actually could hypothetically involve yourself in. You know, uh, federal politics is is completely outside of our um, our control now. Where is our state-level third party? Have you not seen the forward party and their cool graphic design? My prediction, though, I, I, I hate predicting things anymore, but I think the funniest outcome would be that they don't pass anything. They don't even pass the, the bipartisan one. And I can see that happening for sure. I still think most likely... They will pass the bipartisan one, and then uh, the the big one doesn't pass at all. I didn't put any Vaseline on the limbs. What? Let me try that. It would be funniest if they didn't get anything through after all that. Because it really does feel like the whole progressive strategy is, hinges on the idea that Mansion and Cinema are so personally invested in the bipartisan bill that they won't let it die and that they can realistically threaten it. Uh, they, that, there's so many suppositions in there that I don't think are supported that... Uh, but I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, the thing is, is that all that stuff is in the interests. It's in the interests of capital. It's in the interests of power to pass pretty much all the stuff in there. But we have reached the point of of total like lumpen uh, dissolution of the ruling class that there is no more remaining unified agenda. There are only individual like actors within the market using their influence to try to gain special carve-outs for their own sector and their own interest. And that means that they end up basically canceling each other out and making the shift of state list into oblivion, which is, of course, the very situation that existed in the antebellum or in the the post-war robber baron era that the progressive movement was designed to correct. 
to create a self-conscious political class that could exercise authority on behalf of capital and to neutralize the inherent competition within it. Uh, and then we got to this... Not, but but that structure was uh, eventually dissolved in money more than anything. Uh, and now we have a situation where the political parties are non-existent. Like, they aren't really parties. They're just collections of vendors who connect candidates to money. And the candidates get there through a relatively open primary process that uh, can only really discipline the left, but outside of that uh, is largely outside of the party's control. And so everybody in politics ends up just being a totally self-interested, self-seeking uh, political entrepreneur who have no commitment to any party project. So there's no way to get them to do things the way that previous generations of political leaders and presidents were able to. It's, it's, what it is, is it's spooktacular. It's not black pill because, I mean, I think for you to look at the system as it exists and think that there's any levers at this point, post 2020, uh, at the federal level within the party system, I think that's not, that's, that's not anything other than delusion. And more than, I think what it is more than anything is a desire to give your, political spectation a sense of gravitas and meaning because at the end of the day politics is too boring to care about if it doesn't matter like the, the reason that politics is sports for nerds is because uh, the nerd requires their uh, entertainment to have higher stakes and to mean something it has to reflect their identity in a deeper level than just the aesthetic preferences of one team over another. Uh, and so they have to believe that what they're paying attention to has a real meaning and that the intensity of their devotion to one side or another reflects, even if it's not going to change anything, it reflects something about them that means something. And... I think what we're seeing with the two parties now, and specifically with the Republican radicalization and the queification and the Trumpification of the Republicans, and the the uh, the shift in the Democrats towards like a, being the party of the educated, it's not any kind of meaningful class realignment. What it is is it is a greater and greater degree of people who are not. Uh, succeeding in this system, people who are suffering, people who are being alienated 
from the political process, who see the system as it exists as something that is hurting them, not benefiting them, largely checking out, stopping to care, stopping to pay attention, stopping voting. And the people who are left voting are people who are committed to one or another narrative of power. And the Republican advantage right now is that their narrative of power has the energy, the vitality of of, a cinematic narrative. It says that there's like a war for the soul of the country and and that the... And more than anything, though, it recognizes as a fundamental principle the hollowness and corruption and fraudulence of American democracy. Now, the specific understanding of that is absurd and delusional. The, the, the Dominion voting system, stealing votes and all that shit, none of that is true. But as with most conspiracy theories, it is a, it is a personalized, narrativized uh, skin on top of a deeper truth. And because the Democrat, because the the Republican Party now, the people who make up its base are fully alienated from politics, and they feel that they have a champion in Trump and the people who support Trump in the a project of renewal and a project of defeating these rotten systems, that they're going to go out and vote. The Democrats don't have that. All the Democrats have is, hopefully you get in power and, uh, fingers crossed, Joe Manchin doesn't ruin everything. That's all they have. Even when they were saying that Trump stole the election with Putin, they were never rejecting the structures of American democracy and politics. And so they could not and cannot uh, channel that energy. So if you are alienated from politics and see American politics as not representing your interests, your choices really are stop paying attention and be about yourself or joining the, uh, the Great Awakening. And the choice of which one you're going to, going to do is largely going to be determined demographically by your cultural conditioning and by your response to cultural cues that you absorb uh, through the media. And a lot of people see that, this new, you know, there as a fascist rising on the right. And it, and it does have the uh, obsession with decay, the uh, revulsion towards formal democracy that fascist movements have traditionally had. But what it does not have is an actual mass project. All it is is voting for Republicans and showing up at what are basically tailgate parties. It is fun. The real work is supposed to be done by the, by the candidates if you get them in office. But of course, when they get in office, they just become 
what all politicians are now, which is self-seeking entrepreneurs. Like, we've got a couple of QAnon people in Congress, and all they're doing is trying to raise their Q scores. I mean, people are scared of the cops becoming like the the enforcers of fascism, but look what's happening with the man, uh, the mandates, with the vaccine mandates. They're, they're mostly just quitting, or more than more than the quitting, mumble, muttering about it, doing an annoyed TikTok, and then going back to work. Because they're even though they have you know the esprit de corps of being members of a the thin blue line and all that, they're as much atomized, pleasure-seeking, treat addicts as the rest of us. They just have guns. That's why I kind of think that the, the real natural progression here is a president who is able to embrace the... A president who's able to grab people aesthetically the way that Trump does, but by new, but who whose appeal is about neutralizing culture war as opposed to pursuing it. Because the culture stuff is, at the end of the day, bad for business. Because it does make the maintenance of our democratic uh, machinery impossible. And that machinery is a crucial structure. That is why I remember before the election, I thought the reason that Biden was going to win is because there are too many people who were sitting on home equity in the suburbs who didn't want to fight a fucking culture war. And they wanted to turn down the volume. And that's what happened. If you look at why Biden won, it was a huge swing in the relatively well-off suburbs. And a big big swing among uh, relatively uh, well-educated suburban whites. That's McConaughey. This is where I'm going. And so you get the swing back and forth, but it's asymmetrical because only one side really wants to fight the culture war. Only one side wants to, like, fight it in the sense of recognize that we have two incompatible social organs in this country and then get rid of the fetters of, of, of democracy that... Uh, perpetrate the fraud of a deliberative process and, and, and raise the black flag. Uh, and you need both sides willing to do that for, um, for it to really pop off. If the other side is dominated by people who just want to everyone to settle down, as long as there's a relative degree of... Uh, of basic prosperity and and access to creature comforts in the country, then that is going to uh, hold. So in the absence of a willingness to fight the culture war, but a need to have something to get people to vote for that isn't just a nullification of a thesis, that is no positive vision... 
then you need star power. You need charisma. You need Matthew McConaughey. And that's why I think if we really get to a point of crisis, the person in charge will probably not be somebody demanding that we cut down the tall trees and and kill the cockroaches, but somebody insisting to us that everything's going to be okay and that we all need to just be mindful and nice to each other while the necessary necessary violence is carried out technologically and mechanically and dispassionately. But of course, the wild card is supply chain. The wild card is treat flow. The wild card is free refills. But I don't know. I, at this point, I, I've given up any thought of a short-term crisis turning into anything. And, and, the, and the beauty part is, if I'm wrong, there will be nobody there to tell me, see, I told you so, because we'll all be too busy uh, fending for ourselves. I don't have to worry about being owned online, because people are going to have bigger fish to fry. Although I'm sure that even if that happened, if I was wrong, there would be somebody who would, like, find me in my... Uh, in the, in the FEMA camp that I was living in and tell me, ha-ha, you were wrong. But that's fine. I'll be owned. We're all going to get owned eventually. We're all owned all the time. We are being owned constantly all the time. And most of our political ritual is about denying that reality. Like not getting the shot, having guns, posting epic socialist memes. They're all an attempt to express our non-ownedness. But the fact that they let us do it is really all the proof you need that it it doesn't really matter. I did not take down the picture. I just, I moved the camera. I got to move it again. Trying to see which way to move it to get to get Giamatti in there. There he is. There's our guy. There's our buddy. I guess I did move it from that. I was able to actually nail it up to the wall.
Okay, yeah. So one thing I want to ask is, I want to do another uh, book club, but the uh, parameters, though, is I want to do something about uh, something from about European history, uh, some book about European history from uh, from the end of the Black Death till this glorious revolution of 1688. So anything in that time frame, if anyone knows a good book, because I'm getting ready for the, uh, for the thing we're doing with Chris and I, and I'm starting to do, uh, research and it might be fun and helpful to have some of that research be done here, reading a book, talking about it, taking some notes and then having something, uh, as sort of a record. Ah, uh, the C.V. Wedgwood book is good, but I've read it. I kind of want to do a new one I haven't read before. And not specifically about the Thirty Years' War, like about that era in general. Like right now I'm reading a book about the Reformation. Oh, World Lit Only by Fire. I've heard of that one. That's a good one. Maybe that other Wedgwood book, uh, uh, like uh, through, or no, that's the Barbara Tuckman book. Through a Distant Mirror, I think it's called. Or that might be a Wedgwood. Yeah, that was Tuckman. Because the whole project is, because the Thirty Years' War is going to be the hinge of it, but it's really about uh, how capitalism emerges out of the ferment of post uh, of the post-plague European context. Because one thing that I really want to emphasize with it is is how English it was. Like like capitalism is is a specific fixed phenomenon that emerges in England starting in the fourteen hundreds. And like there's a bunch of other stuff happening all throughout Europe that leads to this new nation state form and this nation-state competitive framework. But only one of those competitive states is capitalist by the beginning of the... or is, is, has capitalist like institutions that are beginning to dominate its politics by the late 17th century, and that is England. Like, the Dutch were not capitalist... Like, the, the Dutch Republic was not doing capitalism. They were doing a shit ton of trade, but they did not have the 
compu- the market compulsion at the heart of their economy that they had in England. Right. England had a national market, which is what you need to really have capitalism. And the Dutch didn't really have that. Well, see, it's how you define capitalism. But that's the whole point of the project, is to actually figure out and elucidate a definition that isn't just like selling things. This is interesting. The first government state to consciously choose the path of capitalism. I, I don't think anybody chooses capitalism. I don't think any, any state has ever chosen capitalism in that, in that, by that, if you mean like a democratic or even uh, elite-driven decision to adopt capitalism because capitalism is fundamentally destabilizing to established orders. It is imposed on places. It is imposed. It is adopted in order to compete against other states and to more effectively dominate other classes within a state. Like the English Civil War is this big fight between these different groupings all thinking they're fighting for their own uh, group interests and the way that that is decided, the way they understand group differs depending on where they are and who they are, but those interests are not the interests of, uh, of, of capitalism as they understand it. But what ends up emerging out of all of that, and the death and the, uh, the, the death of the king and the, the bringing back of the Stuarts and then the glorious revolution, what you end up with is capitalism, without any of the actors choosing it consciously. I'd say the closest thing we need to have maybe is to the United States, to a country that like chose capitalism. Of course, they didn't think of it in those terms, but what they were, what the ruling classes there in, in the New World were imagining was, was a uh, dynamic, market-driven uh, political and economic structure.
See, like, the Chinese, I don't know if you can say they chose it, because once again, it's a adapt-or-die type situation. Whereas in, in, in the United States, you have a group of people in, in a position to dominate this new landmass, to assert control uh, on their own terms. I guess it can't really be chosen because what ends, what capitalism does over time is it naturalizes uh, things, structures that are not natural, that are not part of the world, that are human choices. And it, it, it makes us believe that they are being carried out by a a force separate from us, you know? I mean, there's a reason that Adam Smith talks about the invisible hand. Like, it is an attempt to turn human choices into compulsions of nature. It says this stuff that we are choosing to do is actually being forced on us. And in in many important ways, it is being forced on us because everybody is compelled to operate by market logic. But that's because we structure, we consciously structure our social order that way. And it is a theological transformation that turns human agency into this inscrutable will. It, it is, it's how, that, it's how Protestantism solved the problem of, of authority and power that it was unable to resolve during all of those uh, wars and, and uprisings and peasant rebellions that characterized the uh, the centuries after Reformation. And I don't think Protestantism creates capitalism. But I do think that Protestantism, the rise of Protestantism creates a problem for European social order that capitalism addresses. I don't think it's as much Protestantism that makes the conditions as just the reality of a literate urban population undermining the stability of the post-feudal order. The old structures of consent and coercion broke down in the, 15th century, in the 16th century. And Protestantism is sort of an inevitable outcome of that phenomenon. Anyway... We'll talk more about this later on. I'll find a book. Uh, right now, I'm still going to... I'm reading about reconstru- uh, about Reformation right now, but uh, I'll put it out there soon. I'll find one. I think maybe... 
The Black Death and the World It Made. If anyone's read that, I was thinking of reading that next. Just, like, start from the beginning. There's a Teddy Roosevelt show on HBO. Is it like a, I'm assuming it's a, uh, it's a doc, right? It's not a, it's not a uh, drama. That seems very late. Like Teddy Roosevelt was a very, like, seems like Teddy Roosevelt, in my mind, Teddy Roosevelt is like the Ron Swanson of presidents. So it seems like Teddy Roosevelt is a little, uh, uh, he's a little passe at this point. Feels like JFK is the president of the moment because everybody's decided that he was our last hope. Everybody's tracing back all of the the failures and, and disasters of American history and, and they find this hinge point and uh and they're like, Yeah, now give me that. But the thing about Kennedy is to me, he's not terribly interesting personally. Nixon and Johnson who followed him are way more interesting. Although I really, my, my thesis with the whole thing is, is that is that no president by himself post-World War II is going to be able to significantly direct the, the path of, uh, of power away from the desired direction of capital. They can maybe create a little bit of a dam, but the water is going to flow around it. You need a popular force to really, to really assert uh, an alternative. You need popular structures to effectively challenge capital. And those popular structures were dismantled after World War II. Like... Uh, George H.W. Bush, an insanely powerful figure, a guy who was at the intersection of every significant development of uh, political uh, and economic power after World War II. But his power came from the fact that he was willing to be an instrument, that he was not asserting an individual prerogative. That he was willing to embody what what he took to be the system's prerogative. He was not dictating. I really think that... I don't think... I think cosmically it's not a coincidence that at the height of America's state in the 60s and 70s, before it started to dismantle itself. 
Our, we had two presidents in a row who were monomaniacal, power-obsessed maniacs in LBJ and Nixon, both of whom were forced, essentially, to, with, to with relinquish the power that they had sought their entire lives because by the time they scaled that mountain, the machine that they were trying to control could no longer be handled by human hands. Because it's not about good or bad. Like Nixon, Johnson, they just wanted, they wanted to assert power. They wanted to feel that they were, were in control of this thing, this machine that was controlling, by that point, the free world. But what they both found out is that there are hard limits on what you can personally dictate. And they were both broken by that realization. And every president since them, I believe, is of a different mold. They, have, they go to the office happy to be in the room. They just want to be in the room. They have given up imagining that they will change anything. Like, Carter thought that he was going to make the country better by virtue of his being president, because he was a good guy, because he was a, a pious Baptist, and he was going to bring his piety to the national stage, and he was going to make America better that way. That was it. He was just going to transform minds through his virtue and through his public expressive virtue, which ended up being doing what all the bankers told him to do. Reagan, of course, is an actor. Give him a fucking spot on the floor, he'll stand there. Give him some index cards and he'll read them. George H.W. Bush, by that point, had exercised insanely uh, a lot of power behind the scenes. But by that point, by the time he took power, he was fully fused to the project of global capital. So that there was no sense of, uh, of being constrained because what he wanted was what capital wanted. Same thing with Clinton. George H.W. Bush just wanted his dad off his back. The guys around him did have desire to actually assert power and to try to turn America's soft empire into a real one, into a hard empire, and were, and were like all those efforts, smacked down. And then you got Obama, who, like Carter, took power thinking that his personal virtue, his, his, his embodiment of good values, was what the country needed. And then Trump, who just wanted to be on TV all the time, and nobody's on TV more than the president. And now we have Biden, who wanted to be president to validate his chip-on-the-shoulder, fake Irish bullshit uh, to, to, to make up for his self-perceived lack of intellect. And, I mean, the guy decided when he was like 22 years old he was going to be president because he was good at being people's friend. 
And and the president is like the nation's biggest friend. And then, it is amazing when you think about Biden, though. The guy wanted to be the youngest. He was like, he ran for Senate before he was legally allowed to even be a senator. He turned 30 between being elected and being sworn in. So he had his mind at that point on being president like Kennedy, like a young, vigorous commander-in-chief. And he tried. In 88, he tried. He had two brain hemorrhages and got busted for plagiarism. And then he kind of went back into the shadows in the Senate, committed himself to carrying out the uh, right-wing turn of the Democrats that was what they had to do. Hey, this is what being a Democrat is now, being tough on crime, uh, out, out uh, scaremongering Republicans, I'll do it. Then he tries again when he's still, you know, he's no longer going to be the youngest president anymore. But hey, at least he could, he could still get the job, even though he had to hang around the Senate for way longer than he would have wanted to. And he just is eat shit, nobody cares. But then they pull him off of the scrap heap to make him VP. And he has to hang around the White House getting ignored for eight years. And at that point, then he watches Hillary Clinton fumble the bag that he knows he could have gotten. And it's true. If he'd been the nominee in 2016, he would have won. And so with that in mind, he's like, my life literally means nothing if I don't get this office. This is all I've been seeking for all my life. My my kids are either uh, demons whose heads exploded or just... Uh, totally broken by their proximity to power like Hunter. I have to do this or else I'm facing death alone. And so now he's in the White House exhausted, extinguished, without any of the anima that used to motivate him and just waiting for the, the ghosts to take him. And so that's why I think it's going to be, on the right, it's going to be either Trump or Trump-esque ego freaks. Uh, And on the Democratic side, as we saw in 2016, or in 2020, their bench is a bunch of proto, a bunch of like different flavors of Obama that have completely lost any... uh, appeal to anybody but very narrow slivers of, uh, of overly online demographics. So what? it's going to have to be somebody famous. It's going to have to be somebody famous because the party has is, is lost any claim to popular support. Because Biden got the nomination because he was the party. He was just the the husk of the party structure that was still there, that has now mostly been replaced by Obama-style meritocrats. But he is the last one of those guys. There's nobody left. I mean, look at Kamala. Kamala is supposed to be the next iteration of Obama. Everyone hates her, and no one on earth thinks she could be president. 
You're going to need some to get some of that star power that the Republicans have. You got to, you're going to have to get over the the uh, the preening's uh, self seriousness that says we we don't we don't vote for uh, celebrities over here. We we take this seriously because it's not the dog won't hunt. So yeah. I think you're going to have somebody like a Matthew McConaughey just there to tell everybody it's okay to soothe this, soothe them as we are fed into the uh, the slurry shoots. Okay, this is not bad. We'll talk soon. I don't know when next. I, I might be only doing like one a week for for the bit because, but I'll, I'll figure out what book next and uh, let people know.